Let us pray. Father God, open your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word that we might see your glory and proclaim it in the world and to follow you no matter what. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I must confess I really struggled in preparing the sermon for this morning, trying to put our disparate and various readings into some semblance of order and theme. And I was very tempted to follow Jesus' injunction in verse 14. So make up your minds not to prepare in advance what you're going to say. But I did prepare notes. If you were following the scripture readings this morning, you might have noticed a striking discrepancy between the reading of the Old Testament and the Gospel between the dire predictions of Jesus in the Gospel reading and the delightful image of Isaiah's description of the new heaven and the new earth. So let's start this morning in the temple. Come with me to the temple, but I invite you to open your bulletins to the Gospel reading if you'd like to follow along. So the temple. The temple is both the setting and the content of Jesus' discussion. Jesus is with his disciples in the temple. Now, just before this passage, just the previous verses, Jesus had pointed out to his disciples the rich people putting in their money to the temple and a poor woman putting in two small coins. And in a great switch of perspective, he tells the disciples that this poor woman has put in more than all the others because the wealthy seem to have given out of their excess what they had left over, whereas the woman gave all that she had what she needed to live on, and demonstrated a great sense of trust. And so there's this reversal of perspective. The disciples don't seem to get it, so we continue on. And the disciples are admiring, as those around them are, the great stones of the temple. How beautiful and impressive it is. Impressive it was. A massive structure sitting on top of a hill in the center of the city, with its walls covered with gold and silver and white marble. And Jesus said, it's all about to come crashing down. Jesus then launches in to what's referred to as the synoptic apocalypse, talking about the end times, predicting the destruction of the temple and the trappings of religion as they know it. So in the midst of this coming turmoil, will their faith survive? Well, back to the temple for a moment, just the history and the function of the temple. It all began when the Israelites had just come out of slavery, come into the, uh, the desert, the wilderness, went up Mount Sinai, and God gave them the directions, amongst a lot of other things, of how to build a tabernacle, a tent, a tent where they could come and offer sacrifice and meet with the living God. And this was a portable structure that traveled with them. The tabernacle was the focal point of God's people, where people would go to meet with God, enabling a holy God to dwell with his people and to journey with them. So this tabernacle goes with them the 40 years of their wanderings, comes into the promised land, and is set up at various positions in the promised land, until finally it's set up in Jerusalem. Now David is embarrassed about the fact that he has such a swish palace to live in, made of marble and stone, and yet God dwells in a tent. And so he determines to build something comparable for God, 
But what he does now is to take something that was to be uh, uh, transient and traveling with them has become a permanent structure. Now David is told he's not allowed to build the temple because he has blood on his hands. He has been uh, quite an interesting fellow, but a, a very successful warrior. And so David starts then to collect building material, all kinds of the best wood and stone and marble and gold and silver, so that his son can build the temple. And so the tabernacle is replaced with Solomon's temple, which is the largest building in the known world for 500 years. If you've ever seen a picture of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the temple was supposed to be quite a lot larger than that. But 500 years later, it was destroyed. Babylon came in, the Babylonians came in in 587 B.C. and razed it to the ground. Seven years later, the Jewish people come back, now as refugees and exiles, not as having lots of building material at their disposal. And so the temple is rebuilt, but it's quite modest in comparison. Well then, just before Jesus is born, along comes Herod, King Herod. And he would become known for the colossal building projects throughout Judea. And you can still go to Jerusalem and be impressed by the remains, the ruins of these fantastic buildings. You, in seeking to be accepted as their king, uh, because he was only half Jewish, so he had to kind of do something to convince them he should be king, he offers to rebuild the temple. And he rebuilds a massive structure. He augments it, he expands it, he sets it up in the most auspicious way. So this is the building, Herod's temple, which isn't even quite finished when Jesus is there. This is the building in which the conversation took place. And this temple had hardly been completed when 40 years later in 70 AD, the Romans come in and tear it down. Jesus said that not one stone would be left upon another. There's an account of how long it took the Romans to actually knock it down. To give an example, there's still a stone. If you go there today in the tunnel by the foot of the western wall, you can see what's called the western stone. It's a stone measuring over 40 feet long, 9 feet deep, and 11 feet high, weighing 570 tons. It might be the, one of the heaviest things ever lifted by humans without uh, machinery, powered machinery. And so they had to tear those down. And sh I'm sure the disciples thought no one could ever knock this down. But the Romans, of course, set their mind to it. And so Jesus gives them a great warning, a prediction of suffering and betrayal, persecution and opposition, a great clarion call to persevere, to be prepared. And so how does this fit in with the picture, idyllic picture in Isaiah in chapter 65, where they says there will be no more sound of weeping, children won't die, people will live well past 100, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Is it too good to be true? Is it rather fanciful? Is it what some people think of religion as pie in the sky when you die by and by, but of no earthly good in the here and now, facing reality in the face? Well, I think it's what God imagined. I think God is good at imagining and calls us to imagine as well. It's a great privilege for me to work in the school with young children 
whose imaginations are so great. It does say that when Jesus went back to, that prophesied that when Jesus went back to heaven and the Spirit came, that their old men would dream dreams and their young men will see visions. And he will pour out his Spirit on those days and show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. It's what God intends, what he imagines, what he longs for his people, that sense of peace and prosperity. And yet, there is something along the way that we need to persevere. The phrase, a new heaven and a new earth, is a phrase that comes up again in the second to last chapter in the Bible, where John, in the book of Revelation, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he goes on to describe it, and the the, uh, river going down the middle and the trees with the leaves for healing. But as he goes along in verse 22, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The temple, which was intended as a place where mankind would meet with God, is no longer necessary. When Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, he made it clear that he was replacing the function of the temple. That if people wanted to meet with their God, they would no longer go to the temple, but they would go to Jesus. When he died upon the cross, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that on the basis of Jesus' death, we were invited into the very presence of God. When, well, we bring our offerings and build our edifices and gather here for the worship of the community, we do it as an expression of our faith. Our faith is not dependent on the trappings. We engage in the liturgy and the church calendar to give structure to our faith. Advent is coming up. But our faith must not be dependent on those things. Our faith must be firmly fixed on Christ, on our personal faith in him, both individually and as a community. For who knows what the future holds in store for us? We don't know. Whatever comes will, in the words of the old hymn, will your anchor hold in the storms of life. Both the epistle reading and the gospel reading end with the call to endurance, to persevere, to continue in doing what's right. It's a call to believe and to trust in God, to take care of us, to be prepared to work and struggle and uh, fight for what's right. It's a call to witness. Jesus says you'll be arrested and persecuted and you'll have an opportunity to testify. So it's a call to witness in the midst of turmoil, witness by words of truth and invitation, but also to witness by acts of love and mercy and kindness. It's an exhortation to sing and dance and be joyful and delight and imagine and dream and to participate in what God is doing. I love some of the old writers like C.S. Lewis in his description of how the world was created. Aslan sang it into being. And George MacDonald, in his story about Curdy and the Princess, when the goblins are threatening the princess, he says they just can't stand singing. And so he begins to sing and the goblins all go away. The songs can say very different things about imagining. John Lennon, of course, in his famous song, Imagine There Is No Heaven, No Religion. Compare that to the song, the praise song, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by his side. And so we are called to sing. 
and to read the scriptures, to be prepared. We're coming up to the, today's Bible study, Bible Sunday. I love the colic for today. We're encouraged to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest that we might live out the great truths of the Bible and the great mission of the Bible. Uh, someone pointed out that Advent begins on December 21st and has 24 days. And if you read one chapter of the Gospel of Luke each day, you'd read through the whole Gospel of Luke as a preparation for Advent. And so God calls us to embrace what he imagines for us, but also to be prepared to face the days ahead with a re- biblical realism, to see that we are going to be called to struggle sometimes, to reach out, to testify and to sing. Let me just close by reading part of Canticle 9, which is also from the prophet Isaiah. Make his deeds known among the peoples. See that they remember that his name is exalted. Sing the praises of the Lord, for he has done great things, and this is known in all the world. Cry aloud, inhabitants of Zion, ring out your joy, for great, for the great one in the midst of you is the Holy One of Israel. Amen.